Hello everyone, you're listening to America Meditating Radio. We collect wisdom, inspire each other, and empower hearts on demand 24-7. I'm Sister Jenna, host of the syndicated America Meditating Radio. Join us as we talk one-on-one with leading experts who answer life's most compelling questions. Because in a world of uncertainty, we need answers right here, right now. America Meditating Radio, a show for everyone to learn more about this amazing thing called life. Do you like to meditate? Have you tried to meditate? Have you struggled with meditation? Why don't you visit one of the Brahma Kumaris Meditation Center? Visit brahmakumaris.org. Over 30,000 homeless children live in the streets of La Paz, Bolivia. Most of these children live on the bridges and cemeteries or wherever they can find shelter. They eat whatever they can find, steal or beg. Father Joseph Maria Neuenhofer, a German priest, has dedicated his entire life in helping these children. For the last 23 years, Foundation Arco Iris, founded and led by Father Neuenhofer, has helped thousands of these children in providing shelter, food, education, and medical care through the Foundation's hospitals. For more information and to donate to Foundation Arco Iris, go to www.arcoirisamerica.org.
Hello, everyone. Welcome to America Meditating Radio. That was Lucinda Drayton from her Bliss CD. And the title of that track is Lifted. Don't you love it? Kind of brings you in a better atmosphere and in a better mood. Yesterday, I had a very beautiful conversation with Stefan Swart, and I had to ask him to come back on the air to have us have a part two. Stefan spoke a lot about the social transformation that we're witnessing today and the many similarities that we witness in our generations, which sometimes might seem new to me. And what's interesting is, as I was listening to Stefan, I kept thinking to myself, but was there anything, is there anything new now that we could do? in my mind as I'm listening to Stefan, because we've had the Science March, we've had the Women's March, we're having the Climate Change March. Uh, This weekend we're having marches after marches after marches. And um, a lot of people have, have told me that they don't think it really did much in terms of sharing the message that they felt it could have shared. And I really don't really understand what they mean other than I don't know if there is an action that was to be taken or is it that folks are just looking for something specific? So I was a little bit lost when, you know, and these are intellectual folks that are telling me that they thought that they missed the mark. So I've been sitting with that. And after speaking to Stefan, I was wondering what are some of the things that maybe he can lend us in this conversation about areas that we could amplify the story. One is that I know time plays a significant role. You can have great ideas, but you're either way ahead of the way ahead of the time, and so you've kind of planted those seeds for others to come and water and germinate, and eventually you'll look back 20 years later and go, I had already said that and done that. So we're aware of progressive thinkers. We're aware of people who are ahead of their time. But now we have something that we didn't have in the 50s. We didn't have it in the 60s. We didn't have it in the 70s or the 80s. We've got something called social media. And social media has taken us to a completely different level of communication and a completely different level of relating to each other. And as much as I appreciate social media, I've even found myself moving so fast that I don't even value what the next message is or or I don't experience it as deep as if um, George Washington was to send a letter to Congress, which would take much longer than now if Donald Trump was to send a letter to Congress, which would take only a second. So the point that I'm making is that I wonder if it's more of a spiritual awakening that's needed for us to be able to move forward because there's a sense or a feeling that we're going backwards. And maybe it's actually a signal that we have moved spiritually backward. So we're looking at the times where history repeats itself, where women's rights are being taken away from them, where our environment is no longer being cared for, where um, politics perhaps needs more transparency. And so what is it that's needed? That will be my conversation with Stefan today to go deeper into it. And so our return guest today is Stefan Schwartz, and we've had such a rich conversation yesterday, Stefan. Thank you so much for taking the time to come back on the air. Stefan, for those of you who don't know, is a distinguished consulting faculty of Saybrook University and a research associate at the Laboratories for Fundamental Research. He's a columnist for the journal Explorer and editor of the Daily Web publication, SchwartzReport.net, in both of which he covers trends that are affecting the future. 
For 40 years, he has been studying the nature of consciousness, particularly that aspect independent of space and time. He's a part of a small group that founded Modern Remote Viewing Research, which our producer, Antonia, wants to hear everything about, and is the principal researcher studying the use of remote viewing in archaeology. Stefan, thank you so, so much for coming back on the air. As you can see, I really loved our conversation yesterday. Well, it's a pleasure to talk to you this morning. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Antonia wanted me to hit right at this area of an, a research that many of us really don't know about. You've been using something called remote viewing to examine the future, and I understand that you've been getting people to remote view even as far as the year 2015. I mean, I can really deal with 2017, and you have people going all the way to 2050. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with remote viewing, such as myself, could you tell us a little bit more about how it actually works and what types of trends have you found as a result of using it? What's ahead for humanity, Stefan? Uh, well, which one do you want to start with first? What remote All viewing is or what we've discovered? <laughs> remote viewing. Well, we remote viewing. But we need some order. Which would you like to start with? Remote viewing. Okay. Remote viewing is a technique. It's a, actually a protocol those of us in the early 70s, 1970s, there was a, a, an effect that was occurring in research literature called the decline effect. And basically what it was was that you ask people to do things that non-local consciousness task performance is what most people call psychic. It's a word I almost never use, but in any case, you ask people to do tasks like that, and what would happen over time is that their capacity to perform successfully would decrease. That's why it was called the decline effect. And nobody could quite figure it out. And then in the early 70s, when it had become a real crisis problem, a small group of us, uh, oh, a handful of guys, myself, Hal Putoff, Ed May, Russell Target, SRI, Bob John, Roger Nelson at Princeton, a little group of people, we began to ask the question, well, maybe the reason that people have a decline effect is that the tasks that we're asking them to do are boring. And nobody does well at things that they're bored with. So the, que the challenge was, how do you structure an experiment that is scientifically valid, that is, it's properly blinded and randomized and so that the protocol uh, precludes anything other than non-local consciousness providing the answer. Non-local consciousness is that aspect of consciousness that is not physiologically based. That is, it's, it uh, exists independent of space and time. When you ask people to access that part of themselves, how can you do this in a rigorous way that, that is scientifically valid but that doesn't get boring and that therefore they lose their ability to do it. And what we came up with was what we now call remote viewing, a term that was coined in the, about 71 or 72 by a New York artist uh, who was one of the early remote viewers, a man named Ingo Swan. At that point, I was calling it distant viewing, but it's been around for a long time. The oldest recorded remote viewing is in the 46th chapter of Herodotus, his histories of the world, and that dates to the 5th century BCE. So it's been around a long time. I mean, people have long traditions of this. A lot of it gets wound into 
occult beliefs and things like that, the sort of ritualized beliefs. But basically, we weren't interested in, in the sort of cultural part. What we wanted to know was, could we design a system that would allow us to do it? And the answer was, yes, you can. The SRI program was funded by the government, and it was principally a spying program. They they used remote viewers to spy on the Soviet Union. I was interested um, in using it in archaeology and, and used it to find Cleopatra's palace and Mark Anthony's palace and the lighthouse of Pharos, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and one of Christopher Columbus's caravels from his fourth voyage and the Brig Leander and a bunch of other stuff. And then I got interested in looking at the future because I had been on the MIT Secretary of Defense discussion group on innovation technology in the future. I was in the government at that point as the special assistant to the chief of naval operations. Anyway, Mm. so I began to think about, well, could you use this to look at the future and use Mm. it to, to help guide people? And when I began doing research, because before I do any, an experiment, I try to find out everything that's ever been done before in the same area, what I discovered was that if you get too far ahead, nobody can understand what you're talking about. And to give you an example of that, mm-hmm. we all know Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, one of the great, you know, every child reads this book, I guess they still read it. Anyway, it was wildly popular for almost a century and after Jules Verne a French writer had uh, had published it and it was such a huge success his editor asked him what else have you got and he said well I wrote this novel about Paris in the 1960s now he we're speaking here he's in the 1850s and so he said well send it to me and he did and this is a novel in which Verne describes Paris in the 1960s as a city where corporations dominate business. Corporations didn't exist mm. at that time in that way. That women are active in business, unheard of in France at that time. That people drove around in uh, uh, vehicles that didn't require horses, internal combustion machines and that the city was dominated by this huge metal tower. Eiffel Tower hadn't been built yet, and that they, and this is the exact way he described it, and that business correspondence was sent via facsimile machines. Actually mm. used the word facsimile machine. Anyway, wow. he turned this into his editor, and his editor wrote him back and said, Jules, as both your friend and your editor, <laughs> this is just too crazy. Nobody would believe this. This is so off the wall. Uh, my recommendation to you is is to just put this away someplace and forget about it. And that's what he did. And there he put it in a little vault, which nobody knew about at the time. And then in the 19, early 1990s, uh, an heir of Verne's inherited a property, a rural property in France. And when he went out to see this thing that he had inherited, in one of the barns, he found under a table this little this little safe. And he said to the farmer, what's in the safe? And the guy said, well, I don't know. Nobody knows. It's been there for a long time. My father was the farmer before me. He never, uh, he didn't know. You know, it was, just was incurious about it. But the, the heir was very curious. And so he had a locksmith come out and open it up. And that's how we know this story I just told you 
about this because they found the manuscript and the correspondence with the editor. So I, I was, um, that's an example of the sort of thing I, I'm talking about. Anyway, in 1978, we were, in the minds of many people, facing the potential, the real potential of nuclear uh, holocaust crisis. I mean, it's hard to remember mm-hmm. now, but like uh, now more it was than a ever. very big deal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I, I thought, well, could we look at the future and see whether there is, in fact, a nuclear holocaust? And I didn't want to go too far ahead because you wouldn't understand what they were saying, so I chose the year 2050 because mm-hmm. I figured if, if I went far enough ahead to answer my question but not so far ahead that I wouldn't understand the answer, that seemed about the right time frame given how things develop and wow. I, and so from 1978 to 1996 i had about 4000 people in about 12 different countries do remote viewings of the year 2050 on the same date as the day i did the experiment so today is what the 25th of april so a typical thing would be uh sister jenna i would like you to go forward in time to the 25th of of April uh, 2050, you're standing in front of the place where you sleep. Now, the the problem with doing these kinds of experiments is, and this is hard to learn for a lot of people, is that you have to ask questions that do not contain a cue as to the answer you're seeking. So you'll notice in that first thing I just said, I didn't say you're standing in front of the house where you sleep. Because maybe in 2050, everybody lives in condos. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you have to ask your questions so that they don't contain the suggestion of an answer. So the way you would do it is your life size. That turns out to be important because we know from other research that people can get down to the submolecular level. So you want to give them the cue that they're life size and that you're standing in front of the place where you sleep because everybody sleeps, but you'll see what the answer is anyway so i have done this all over the world literally as i say in about a dozen countries and they all tell basically the same story which at the time i didn't understand at all uh even though it was only 50 years ahead i some of it i could understand but a large lot a lot of it i couldn't understand for instance they one of the questions i had because i was concerned about nuclear war was, uh, well, what's happening with the Soviet Union? And they would say things like, well, it's disappeared. And I just, mm-hmm. you know, what? Wow. Martians came down and ripped it up and took it away? I mean, how could that be? Because at those days, we thought of the Soviet Union as this great monolithic power. And they would say, well, it doesn't exist anymore. Right. Of course, that's true. I mean, now you look back on it and say, well, of course, that's ob-. But it was not at all obvious. So then I would say things like, well, then is the world safer? And they would say, no, the world is much more dangerous. Mm. And I said, well, if the Soviet Union has disappeared, why is the world more dangerous? Well, because of terrorism. Terrorism? (laughs) And they would say, yes, terrorism is a huge problem. And um, Mm. anyway, I went through how people paid money, how people traveled, how they communicated, all the things you'd want to know if you were going to describe the future. And and the descriptions that they gave to uh, and they describe how it built up over time so it wasn't just you know i i would say it's the 25th of april uh 2050 but 
and they would say something, and I would say, well, how did that happen? Uh, one of the things, for instance, was I said um, about medicine, and they told me, well, um, antibiotic medicine has failed. I just mm. I, I couldn't even make sense of that. Of course, right. it's true. We antibiotic medicine. We now have these super bugs, and and right. I said, um, well, um, what is? Are there any problems medically in this period of time? And well, yes, there are all these epidemic uh, epidemics. They said yes. Well, it starts. It's going to start with um, a blood disease which transferred across from primates in Africa. And it spread across the world and killed millions of people. And I oh, and that was okay. So then I went to the deputy director of the National Institutes of Health, and I said to him, "Do you know anything about a blood disease that crosses over from primates and comes out of West Africa and kills is going to kill millions of people?" And this is about 1979. And he said to me, "Stephen, I don't know what you're talking about. No, we don't know anything about that. But of course, in '81." Uh, AIDS surfaces, and mm-hmm. um, and it killed millions of people. Right. So um, everything that the 2050s have told me uh, has come to pass. The, the, the key to this is it's not what one person says. You know, suppose it's a, it's outside quite a of your... It's few, right. Yeah, it's, it's about 4,000 people total. But now, was there any if, conversation? I'm sorry, I had to jump in here because no, was there right. any conversation about them actually witnessing that as much as those things are a reality, did they see anything of like a spiritual awakening? Because that's the area that I'm in, in. You know, did they see that people were waking up from a deep internal sleep and were becoming more, more ethical, more value based, more virtue based? Uh, well, uh, you know, I'd love to give you wonderful good news, but I don't think yeah. that's going to happen. Um, kind of puts me out of business. <laughs> well, no, no, because what they did say was that there is a change in consciousness okay. that was forced by the by climate change. Now, I'd never heard of climate change in 1978, 79, 80. I didn't learn about climate change until 1991. So it didn't make any sense to me. Again, I, again I, and I stress this. It's it's amazing how quickly things change. So you don't think from 1990 to 2050. I mean, that doesn't seem like such a long time, but massive changes occur. What is happening is that well, we touched a little bit on this yesterday. Is that there is a shift in consciousness that is occurring as some of the population, but not all of the population, awaken to the idea that the way to deal with climate change is by recognizing that all life is interconnected and interdependent and that you must design systems that are wellness-oriented because the unintended consequences that arise from very limited thinking, oh, we'll just pull all of this, uh, uh, whatever this material is, out of the earth and that's all we need to worry about, but you don't actually think about, well, what happens to the runoff? What happens to the slag? What happens to the toxins that invade the water system? And and so you have to stop that kind of thinking, and you have to begin thinking, what are the implications for well-being of something that you want to do? And uh, the 
remote the 2050s saw this change of consciousness as finally tipping into the side of the life affirming but it has uh, been a very difficult period i would say that the next uh, between now and about 2040 it's going to be very difficult we i mean you can look at the united states today we currently have an administration that doesn't believe climate change exists they're doing everything in their power to change regulations at the epa to to eliminate regulations that are designed to to limit the amount of toxins that can be released or the amount of co2 that can be released so the united states is moving exactly backwards other countries are moving forward uh, but we are becoming increasingly um, isolated. Um, yeah, that we're seeing. So that we're going to go through sure. a very difficult. Uh, yeah, we're going to go through a very difficult period. Well, I was just going to say, by 2050, things seem to be leveling out. So, does the role of um, religion, meditation, spirituality, is there anything at all involved in the next few decades to come? Because you and I, I'm pretty sure that when you've go, when you're going through a very rough period, you find yourself going deeper within and feeling maybe a deeper empathy, even though you know you, you're still in motion. Is there any discussion, any amplification that an awakening is going to happen? That um, religion will begin to work for people, spirituality will begin to work, meditation will begin to work, or is it too well, subtle or, or sublime? For them to have witnessed or, or picked that up in their remote viewing. No, the good there is some good news here. Uh, meditation uh, is increasingly um, in use, and and people are are instructed in it. I make a very strong distinction between religion and spirituality. Mm-hmm. So I got know. To start Me with too. That. Um, Me too. All religions are man-made. And they all result from a single individual having non-local consciousness experiences, and that person becomes charis- is If that person is charismatic, and if they speak in a manner which resonates with the culture in which they are embedded, um, then uh, they develop disciples, and the disciples then begin creating dogmas and rituals and. So I make a very big distinction between uh, non-local consciousness, which is what traditionally is called spirituality, and religion. I do not see a growth in religion. In fact, quite the opposite. I do see, uh, and the 2050s described, a significant increase in the awareness of consciousness as the fundamental it, what you would, I think, probably call spiritual. Um, I think of spirituality or the spiritual as a pre-technological word to describe non-local consciousness experiences. That is, accessing, opening to that part of yourself that is the eternal self, what religion would call the soul, this aspect of you that existed before you were born and will continue after mm-hmm. you're physically dead, and that this aspect will episodically manifest other personalities, which will in turn incarnate, but that there is this fundamental part of us, the eternal self, 
which continues and which is not physiologically based. That is, the materialist worldview is dead meat, no consciousness. You know, you die, Mm -hmm. that's it. The mind is just the result of physiological processes in in the neuroanatomy of the organism. And the other view, which I believe is becoming increasingly the prevailing view, although still not the dominant view, is that consciousness is the fundamental. Uh, Max Planck, for instance, in 1931, the father of quantum mechanics, they asked him, what have you learned? You're one of the most famous, he and Einstein, the most famous scientists in the world. What have you learned? And he said, what I've learned is that consciousness is fundamental and space-time is a manifestation of consciousness, not consciousness a manifestation of space-time. You cannot get behind consciousness. It is the fundamental. And Einstein, uh, asked a similar question, said, well, you have to recognize that what we call reality is an optical delusion, one of my favorites, mm-hmm. and that um, there is this other aspect. And, and in fact, most of the individuals, most of the men who were uh, uh, the founders of modern physics, in the, particularly the German school, Planck, Heisenberg, Pauli, Schrodinger, Einstein, they all believe this idea that consciousness, because that's what their research showed them, that consciousness was the fundamental. And, in, and I think in order to deal with climate change, we are going to have to open to this aspect of ourselves. We, know, we can see, if you look at the scientific literature, that the number of papers being written about meditation, meditation not in a religious context, but right. as a technique for psychophysical self-regulation, there are now well over a thousand such papers, and that they show enormous changes in your physiology as well as your psychology. And, and wherever meditation is put into practice in communities, whether it's students in in inner city schools or whether it's marines who are being trained you know in the course of their military training wherever you teach people how to meditate you improve the quality of their health their psychology and and their outlook um we know for instance that if you do uh 20 minutes a day of meditation when you get to about the 11th cumulative hour that you have significantly changed the structure of your brain. Your prefrontal cortex is thickened. Your neuronal activity has significantly increased. Your memory increases. Your IQ goes up. uh, Your blood pressure goes down. All of this is really, when you really get down to what is meditation, what you see is it is intentioned, focused awareness. So, The key to all of this is to be able to attain and sustain intentioned, focused awareness. That's why they teach meditation in dojos, military or uh, martial arts uh, dojos, and they teach it in monasteries because they recognize from both paths that the ability to attain and sustain intentioned, focused awareness has a huge importance in coming to truly understand and and have control over yourself um, we can see this in 
in, um, as I say, in all sorts of applications. Um, it's not inherently religious, although it is often incorporated into religion because religions all begin because one individual has, as I said, a non-local consciousness experience, and they talk about it, and other people are attracted to it. And if you look at, for instance, all the religious rituals around the world across all of human history, you'll see they have the same elements. It doesn't matter about the dogma part. The actual ritual has the same elements. You gather at yes. the designated yes, place. Mm-hmm. You you know whether it's a whether it's an oak grove or whether it's a, a temple or a synagogue or a mosque or whatever. You gather at the appointed place. You have a statement of group intention. If you're a Christian, it's the Nicene Creed, for instance. So you make a the group makes a a statement of of common intention because this issue of intention is the key to social change and all sorts of other things. You then have a period of singing, dancing, drumming, chanting, and the reason that that matters, and we know this from the and uh, from the neuroscience research. There's even a part of neuroscience called neurotheology now that was begun by a man named Andrew Newberg. But the uh, drumming together, chanting together, singing together, dancing together causes brain entraining. That is, everybody's brain begins to entrain, and when that happens, it becomes easier to express group intention. And then you have a period where some but not all of the members of the community may have, may or may not, but may have a non-local consciousness experience. Again, if you're a Christian, that would be speaking in tongues, for instance, or or right. in many religions it would be a healing ceremony. Uh, in right. voodoo it might be possession by Dr. Dre or whatever. And then uh, you have a homily or a, some sort of dogma. That's the man-made part. And the recommitment to gather again. But if you really look at what the ritual is about, it's about allowing a small number of the people in the community to have a non-local consciousness experience and report it back to the community as a validation of the truth of what they're doing. I so understand that, and I think that as the supports, so what I call the scaffolding, um, begin to break away, there is something that we all have to turn to within ourselves, which might be just be what you shared, intentionality, where we're going to want to feel at peace with our own story, with our conscience. Mm-hmm. And I'm just aiming for the reality that we are going to step more into integrity, honesty, transparency, lovingness, understanding, acceptance of all, because it's going to be so different it's going to be so different. It's it's going to be so backward. And the consciousness is going to want to go forward to sort of create what I would call a golden aged world, you know, a world where there is some resonance of consciousness with everyone collectively, where there's an absence of negativity in one's personality or nature, because they've seen over and over again, it doesn't work, it doesn't serve the common good. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I think that what you're saying is correct. I would only modify it, or, or I would, I guess my comment on it would be, we are going, the only way we're going to get through climate change is by awakening to the idea that we are more than animated meat. 
because the dominionist view, you know, we have dominion over the earth as if we are somehow separate from it. We don't live on the earth. We live in the earth. There's life miles beneath our feet and miles above our head. We live in the Goldilocks zone on the surface. We are not independent of the great matrix of life. We are just a component in it. And when we recognize that, we recognize that the exploitation of another component is not without consequence. So the only way humanity is going to get through climate change and retain civilization is by this awakening process. Um, We have this capacity. I would say to people, I do say to people, I've been teaching meditation for, I'm a daily meditator for almost 60 years now, and I say to people that the greatest gift you can give yourself is to develop the daily practice of meditation. How you do it is much less important than that you do it. So it's not that there's a technique. There's You find a technique that works for you, that satisfies your emotional and inner needs, and the key to it is that you practice it every day. And if you will do that, as I said, the the, uh, the scientific research is absolutely clear about what comes out of that. I mean, you get smarter, you get, you sleep better, you your health is better. I mean, every aspect of your life will improve. There is no greater gift you can give yourself as a person than to develop the daily practice of meditation. And the Beautiful. evidence for that is just overwhelming. Right, right. I'm so glad that you said that. It's just, you know, I am a data person. Yeah. So what I care about is the data. Is this, not do I claim this, not do I speculate this, not do I wish this, what actually happens when you do it? And when you look at the research data on meditation, mindfulness meditation, whatever you call it, what you see is that those people who practice it every day have a substantively different course of life than those that do not. It's more life-affirming. It's more wellness-oriented. You recognize your interdependence and interconnection with other life forms. So you become an environmentalist. I mean, all of those things. There just isn't anything more important than developing the daily practice of meditation. Stefan, I can't let you go until I have you share a little bit more about your new book, The Eight Laws of Change. Uh, And you include a pledge for people to take when making decisions. Could you share with our listeners pledge and how it can perhaps help them make the world better? Well, this actually is a continuation of the conversation we've just been having, uh, Sister Jenna. I mean, what happens is is that meditation and, and focusing on this eternal aspect of yourself is an individual act, but it has social consequences. When large numbers of people hold a common intention, things change. And you can look at um, changes in smoking. You can look at gender equality. You can look at marriage equality. You can look at a whole raft of social behaviors which were at one time acceptable but which are no longer acceptable, not because anybody passed a law about it, but because individuals collectively 
decide, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to think that. I'm not going to hold that point of view. And so the technique that I developed and discuss in The Eight Laws of Change, which is the book that I wrote to tell people, do not despair, do not feel unempowered, do not feel that you can't make a difference, because the truth is there is no force on earth more powerful than the collective intention of a large number of people. And so right. I wrote a book which is science-based about how to do that, not based on my theory or my religion or my speculations, but on the actual research that shows us if you do this, this is what you get. And the point that you're making, the quotidian pledge, quotidian just means mundane, ordinary, daily. That's why I use that word. It, and I called it quotidian rather than mundane, ordinary, because I wanted it to have a, a, a word that would make it sort of stick in people's minds. And basically all it says, it's very simple. It doesn't require any money. It doesn't require power in the official sense. It doesn't require that you come from a wealthy family or any of that. Every individual has this power, and that is every day you make dozens of choices. You make choices about the toothpaste you use. You make choices about the dog food you feed your dog. You make choices about the paper towels that you buy, and on and on and on. So first of all, be aware you're making choices. And second of all, of the choices that are available to you, consistently and universally always choose that option which is the most compassionate and life-affirming as you understand it in that moment. So every time you are faced with a choice, you have options. Now, it may be that none of the options are very good, but inevitably one is always slightly better than the others. And if you will consistently make the compassionate, life-affirming choice, that choose that option, and you will share with other people that you are doing this as a discipline and invite them to join you, very quickly you can create the circumstances which create social change. Because, well, just start with a 1,000 people. If a 1,000 people who are listening to us now, I mean, you have a lot more than a 1,000 people, but if only a 1,000 people out of all the people that are listening to this this conversation now would make this commitment and tell 10 of their friends that they're doing it and invite them to do the same, well, then we would go from 1,000 to 10,000 to 100,000 to a million to 10 million to 100 million. And so in, in five jumps, we would have gone from 1,000 people to about a third of the population of the country. I tell this to people all the time, and it just seems so simple that can't possibly work. But in fact, mm -hmm. if you look at how Gandhi was able to get independence for India or Martin Luther King was able to get civil rights through, that is exactly what happened. Yeah, you exactly. got individual people to make different choices. Now, can I jump in here because I know we have to come to a closure and I could listen to you all day. We've got social media now, so we've got people looking at things at high volumes and perhaps experiencing what they're witnessing. Is that creating a change as well? Because it seems to be a little different. I mean, if we, we have back in the days of Gandhi or King and that social collective human vibration was making a change, will it still be as effective at a virtual level as well? Yes, but it depends. Mm. The, the problem is that you have to make the commitment that you are 
focused on that which is compassionate and life-affirming. That the Social media is a process which is enormously powerful, but it doesn't have inherently any particular life-affirming value. That is, mm. you could develop a social media thing that was promoting pornography, for instance. Mm. It's the, mm. the social media part is the process. The, 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 the individual responsibility is when you engage in this social process, are you doing so to create enhanced well-being or are you doing it so that you can make profit or so you can get revenge on somebody or so you can hurt somebody? I mean, that is the choice. The, the process is neutral. You could use it for good or ill. The, the, the strength of social media is that it now allows us to communicate a common intention at an enormously uh, speeded up rate from what, we was, what was possible in the past, but it does not inherently involve uh, uh, wellness. You have, that is the thing the individual brings to the process. And so those processes which are guided by wellness and a fostering of well-being from the individual to the family, to the community, to the nation, to the planet itself, those things can, can create enormous positive change. Mm, I like uh, that. I love that. That's a positive note so for us it, to end our yeah. conversation on because I think that we get a little bit disheartened when, I can't say for myself, because I'm, I'm from a different genre of consciousness. But I do know that um, one of the reasons why folks don't usually like to tell too much to average folks is the fear that they won't be able to manage it, they won't be able to deal with it. And I think that you ending this narrative on a very positive note makes it hopeful, shall we say. And it should be hopeful. You, yeah. Everybody listening to this has the power to create positive, life-affirming change. It doesn't exactly. require money. That's the point. It's not about how the world views power externally. It's how you as an individual, what you commit yourself to be in support of, and if your intention is to be in support of that which is compassionate and life-affirming, you have the power to change the world. Beautiful, beautiful. Stefan, thank you so much for reminding us about the things that we need to do for ourselves, the things that we need to look forward to, but that also being in a good and a pure intention and making that as a collective contribution uh, will definitely warrant the manifestation of where that intention is in each of us. So thank you so much. Please leave our listeners with where they can get a copy of your latest book. And anytime you have any real amazing stories to tell us, do not hesitate to come on the air. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> well, you you want to go to stephanaschwartz.com, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-A-S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z.com, or you can go to Amazon uh, or Barnes & Noble. Uh, it's called The Eight Laws of Change, and it will tell you exactly how to use science-based processes to create life-affirming change. That's why I wrote it. It, has, it is written in such a way that anybody can understand it. These are very simple and straightforward things that 
people have a hard time believing that they can actually do it, but the book also gives you examples of people just like you who have tried this and made it work and changed the world. Mm, thank you so much. Stefan Swartz, thank you for joining us on the America Meditating Radio. All the very best. My pleasure. Mm, take care. Bye-bye. So as we've heard so much from Stefan about the changes that are going to come, and I think many of us were very sensitive we can also feel those changes. And so as we're feeling them, to me, the direction that we must take is the direction of internal empowerment, inner reconnection to a spirit of innocence, a spirit of power to become a force, but a gentle force, something that really navigates us through uh, times that are just not fitting for the spirit. But nonetheless, we're going to push ourselves through to our best ability. Well, thank you for joining us. Remember, no one can take away your happiness unless you give them permission. And we are here to love each other the same. So let's end our wonderful conversation with one of these beautiful tracks by Kristen Hoffman. Take care, everyone.
Like a shockwave straight through your heart, one in your back, and then the tears fall like signals and smoke, calling you back to the light. Feel the whispers tangle your soul, one in your back. Why don't you bring me Shine.